Okay, why don't we go ahead and get started so we, if we can get people settled down. Um, good crowd. Did you have enough lunch? Yeah, it looks like. Don, did you get lunch? No, I have lunch. All right. So uh, welcome everyone to our May AIDS seminar. Um, and uh, our speaker today is Don Averett, been a speaker on 20 plus years of AIDS advocacy and activism before telling you a little bit more about Don so that I don't forget the business part of things that I have to do. To tell people who are going to receive credit for this, you have to attend 80% of the program to get that credit. So if you leave 15 minutes early, you don't get it. Um, and the planning committee member, me, is a consultant uh, for Gilead Biosciences. This planning committee member uh, had my conflicts resolved by altering my control over the content of our products or services of the commercial interest. Neither the other planning committee members nor the speaker have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. That's all I have to say, right, Richard? What's that? No commercial support, that's right. So there is no commercial support for the program. Thank you. All right, so um, so Don Averett, my pleasure to introduce. Um, so Don's been involved in... Um, activism and advocacy since the early 90s, really, and has been uh, very active in advocating ever since. Um, uh, I've met Don over a number of years, but uh, most recently, happy to mention that she actually became a local member of the community uh, last year, yeah, 2014, two years ago, 2013, when she moved to the Upper Valley, where she now lives. So uh, we've been thinking about taking advantage of her presence, and so we're bringing her in today to do that. Um, as mentioned, Don's been very active over the years and remains very active. And just looking at the list of boards and committees that she's a member of, I'll mention a few um, that are ongoing. Uh, President's Advisory Council on HIV AIDS, Patcha, uh, a member of the NIH Women and Girls Working Group, a member of the Perinatal HIV Guidelines Working Group, the NIH Therapeutics Work. These are all ongoing. So I don't actually, actually, I guess I do understand why I only see Don at Dan and Witz like once a month. Um, she's probably on the road more than she is uh, at home. Um, so um, let me uh, hand off to Don and uh, look forward to doing what Now, is, is this on? Yeah. Okay before I start yelling at you, oh, you're here in So um, thank you, uh, Brian and Richard and others, for, for asking me to be here. It's actually a really nice treat to just get up at home and get dressed and come in, uh, drive down the road, and, and actually get to give a talk like this. So um, thank you all for spending your lunch time with me. Um, when we talked about this talk, um, we talked about sharing with you some of my experience in advocacy and activism over the last 20 years, and then I realized that it's more like 25, 27. So I just put the little plus up there uh, to, to kind of give you an idea that it's it's been a good long ride. Um, so here's my plan for, for our time together. Um, a big piece of it from my perspective is to kind of do some thinking and hopefully some questions. And I'd love to have some time to have a little bit of a dialogue by the time uh, we uh, wrap up. So I'm going to tell you just very briefly uh, why I'm standing in front of you, who I am, and uh, uh, a little bit about kind of the landscape of HIV and AIDS advocacy as I understand it. This is probably a room full of people who know quite a bit about um, HIV and AIDS, so I'm not going to bore you with things that I suspect you already know. And then a little bit um, about the uh, accomplishments um, that I think that the activist and advocacy community, specifically around HIV and AIDS, uh, has, has, um, has uh, brought to bear accomplished accomplishments. And then what's next? Where do we go from here? Um, and then I think we're going to, I want to pull back for just a second and talk a little bit about the big picture and then ultimately why, why that matters. So. Um, to give you, let me, let me actually take a step back and ask the question. How many people in this room have been working in the HIV and AIDS 
field or arena since the 80s? A few hands. Okay, the 90s. Does anybody else find it alarming when we start to do things in decades? <laughs> I find that a little troubling sometimes. Okay, 2000s. Yeah, and then uh, anybody who's kind of started in all of this in the last, say, five years? Okay, great. You skipped the 70s. I, I skipped the 70s. I know, but, you know, there's some real nuance to the 70s that we have to go over. <laughs> Nonetheless, the point is there are a lot of you who have been doing this work for a very long time and are very familiar with it. And frankly, uh, as important, and the thing that I am so grateful for is there are those of you who are new to this because there's an enormous need to continue to bring folks into the work around HIV and AIDS. So thank you for, for making that choice. I came into all of this in 1988 um, at a time like perhaps some of you uh, that uh, HIV was not even on my radar screen. I didn't expect it. I was 19 years old and I got an HIV diagnosis. Um, I was the first woman my doctor diagnosed in Atlanta, Georgia and I didn't know another positive woman in the world. Um, so my journey with HIV was one for, I think, many people in this room that started because of my personal um, experience with an HIV diagnosis, or um, I know many of you found your way into this because you were a resident and ended up treating somebody, or a social worker who found yourself trying to help manage people in the very early days of this epidemic. The reality is many of us came into this because of some very um, intense and significant personal experience. So I wanted to start here. I don't, I don't know how many of you have seen, have you seen the, this report um, that was kind of back to the basics? It was something that kind of reviewed the HIV and AIDS advocacy landscape and did, did actually a, quite a nice job of looking at how Specifically, AIDS advocacy has impacted medicine overall, medical research, and how we think about um, patient engagement and a whole bunch of other things. So I thought it would be kind of useful to just look at a couple of snippets. This is before I started in all of this. This was the early days. And I think just to orient you, the thing that's really fascinating for me is the bottom line. This bottom uh, line is showing you the kind of significant, and these are by no means fully representative of everything that was going on, but a couple of very kind of significant milestone events that happened basically in the hands of the community um, by the AIDS, the AIDS activist movement kind of starting from the very earliest stages in this work. And the things across the top are all probably points in which you will remember significant change occurring, even including when we um, identified HIV um, the first international AIDS conference and those kinds of things. But you can look down here and see that, that at the point at which we were still referring to HIV um, as gay-related immune disorder, the gay men's health crisis uh, came into being in New York City. And it was the beginning of people coming together and saying, we've got a problem and we can't wait for someone else to solve it. Um, and that has been uh, a, a critical component to this fight from the very, very, very beginning from my perspective. So now, 1988, this set is where, where, of course, my story begins in all of this. It's also, 1988 was the year um, that UNAIDS declared the first World AIDS Day. I thought that was for me, but it turns out there were a lot of other people um, with HIV, too. And um, if you think about it, we are now coming up on the 27th, 27th World AIDS Day. It's pretty staggering if you think about it. In a lot of ways, this conversation is about how incredibly far we've come and the things that we've been able to really significantly impact and also what we still have yet to do. So um, again, along this bottom line, some of the things that are really, uh, I think, essential as we start to talk about some of the great accomplishments <coughs> in advocacy work over this time is some of the things that were happening largely with ACT UP and Larry Kramer and the folks in New York and also in San Francisco kind of coming together and and you know, you'll remember the early footage of being chained to buildings and storming the NIH and really kind of getting people's attention in a very big and significant way. That has been a powerful, powerful part of this movement from the very beginning. And to their credit, has yield, yielded some really phenomenal outcomes. Um, so I think from 
from my perspective, some of the things that were uh, that are most astounding in this process have been uh, the way that the HIV um, advocacy movement has changed the way we practice medicine, the way we do clinical research, the way we approve drugs, the way we provide care, the way the pharmaceutical industry views their customer. Um, there's a whole list and litany of things that are different, not just in HIV today, but probably because of some of the early work um, along the way. So the first one here, revolutionized clinical trial design and implementation. And, and this is a piece that is near and dear to my heart because I spent a great deal of the last 20 years working on how to do more, better, faster research for women, how to get to disempowered and disenfranchised communities, how to ask questions patients actually want answers to, um, and you know, how to get to the, to the communities that really, really need to be involved. Um, in the early days, from the very beginning after the storming of the NIH, we had the development of the AIDS Clinical Trials Group, and the ACTG has, has been a, um, an enormous force in HIV and AIDS research over, over the decades. Now, there are many challenges with all of these things. I want to be careful when I talk about the accomplishments that we don't, I don't give you a sense that I think that every one of these things was just a clean and easy win. Um, there have been a lot, a lot of challenges and a lot of evolution in all of this. Um, another thing that came out of a lot of the AIDS activism and early engagement were the, were the development of community advisory boards and getting patients at the table and community members and advocates at the table to talk about the things that they really cared about in their clinical trials, the things that they wanted answers to, the things that, that they felt that were important and needed. There have been many, many iterations of community advisory boards, and if those of you who've had experience working with them and running them, it is not an easy uh, road. <laughs> there are a lot, a lot of challenges and there are a lot of frustrations, and especially when you're dealing with really uh, complex scientific ideas and you're trying to get that across to a patient um, population that may or may not have even a high school education, but have very strong feelings about what they want to see, there's a lot of give and take and a lot of push and pull in this process. I also put up here the GRACE study, which was the first study of its kind to uh, enroll, successfully enroll nearly 70% women and 87% people of color in the United States. And as many of you are probably aware, enrollment of clinical trials in the United States look wildly different than they do um, in other places around the world. And so increasingly, over the last couple of decades, when we want to approve new treatments and get new information done, we go outside of the US for those studies. Um, the feeling has been that it's just not possible to enroll women in studies or people of color in studies in the US. There are lots of reasons why that's not true, and there are lots of hurdles to overcome in order to make that happen. So the Gray study was uh, kind of came together in about 2006, 2007, and was completed in 2009, and it was a, a classic phase 3B uh, clinical trial looking at treatment efficacy, but the piece of it that was important was that we were finally able to really effectively engage women and think about how we identified sites, um, developing some novel site opportunities so that, so that patients interfaced with people that they trusted and had good relationships with, um, and helping also to expand and enhance the work of the sites that were, have been doing this for a very long time, but who had been limited thus far in their ability to enroll these specific patient populations. So another one of the kind of key accomplishments from my perspective is this um, expanded and enhanced um, how we have expanded and enhanced the regulatory process. So um, some of these things may or may not be familiar to, to you, but in like the, I think it was 87 or so, the treatment um, IND process was put into place where we could actually get patients with a life-threatening disease access to a therapy before it was approved if it seemed like there was uh, the potential for more good than harm. Um, and, and from that, then the parallel track process, process came around uh, early 92, 90, yeah, I think about 1992, where again, we were able to not just do it on an individual one-on-one -on -one basis, but actually create a parallel track. And for those of you who remember um, the research around D4T and some of the early nucleoside analog therapies, 
They were some of our kind of initial experiences with creating parallel track programs to get people onto treatment at a time when there wasn't access to it any other way. And then, um, of course, the expanded access program, which has taken multiple different paths and has looked a lot of different ways um, over the years, most notably and kind of infamously something that I was um, intimately involved with, which was the, the lottery program that Merck did for the release of Crixivan um, back in um, 1995. So for those of you who were around during those times, it was an incredibly um, scary and dire period, and people needed access to treatment. The companies had huge production problems and couldn't just make them available. And um, we had kind of a historic meeting with the actual production crew at Merck to, to, to really have outside experts verify that they could, in fact, um, uh, prove that they could not produce more drug than they were producing. And their response to us was that they probably could only provide drug for four or 500 people, and what good would that do? And a dear friend and colleague of mine stood up, looked them in the eye, and said, that is a fully loaded 747 that you are choosing to let fall out of the sky, and stormed out of the room. And for the next 48 hours, that crew worked around the clock and came back to us and said, we can figure out, we can get enough drugs for 1,000 people, help us figure out how we're going to disperse it. And we developed a lottery program. The lottery, of course, has, it was a mess for many, many, many reasons, as you can imagine, but it was, I think, indicative of what that time was like. Um, so in addition to, to some of the things that around uh, treatment access and how we did research, there's, this, is, this whole movement has been about kind of forcing political response and creating political will and engagement and often against everyone's best, well, <laughs> against their, their own desires, as you can imagine. Um, there were many uh, years where um, the AIDS activist community worked day and night to try to get President Ronald Reagan to actually utter the words HIV and AIDS publicly. Um, but simultaneously, and in his administration, C. Everett Koop did something that's never been done in history, and that was he issued a letter to every household in America about HIV. Um, and we have never done seen that before or since, and that was an extraordinary, extraordinary outreach effort that took place kind of behind the scenes in ways that many people may, may not have realized. Another thing that, that um, came about in this time, and you know, for a lot of reasons, HIV obviously is politically charged. Um, the stigma associated with HIV is significant. It is alive and well today. It looks a little different than it did maybe in the early days, but it is here. And it is a problem when we're dealing with political leaders and decision makers. Um, nonetheless, some of the most significant work that's been done has truly been bipartisan. Does everybody remember what bipartisan means? <laughs> yeah. It's, um, so, I mean, it's really, it, it's really remarkable. One of those things was the Ryan White Care Act, um, which has now been reauthorized four times. Um, and although was intended to be the payer of last resort in HIV and AIDS, has really truly created the foundation for care um, and service for most people with HIV or many people with HIV in this country. Um, it is also, by the way, something that is um, evolving and on the block and something that we have to think a lot about as we move towards and into full-scale ACA implementation. The Affordable Care Act is changing some of how we have provided some of these, care, these services, and that's going to be a significant issue to, to be considered going forward. Of course, the other thing, and this is, this is always an important moment. I don't often get to get, stand up and say anything. Um, really great about uh, George W. Bush, except for that George W. Bush and his administration were behind the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, the PEPFAR program. And PEPFAR has done things that no one believed were, were possible. Um, it has been an astounding program. It has been a, a remarkable success. It has not solved 
the problem. We have a lot left to do. But it is um, also something that has been pretty remarkable in terms of a very kind of bipartisan um, effort to really address HIV and AIDS globally. But we can come back in a little while to what has actually happened domestically. Um, and then uh, another major accomplishment from my perspective is um, shifting the customer paradigm for the pharmaceutical industry. Up until HIV and AIDS, really, um, pharmaceutical companies' customers were prescribers. <coughs> doctors, the people who wrote the prescriptions, that's who their customers are. And for those of you who are prescribers, you still are. And um, there is now this enormous and um, impossible to ignore uh, consumer and customer base that is the patient community. Um, we know that when patients go in and ask their doctor for a treatment, it's upwards of almost 90% of those uh, actually result in a prescription. And that the power um, that patients have in kind of engaging in their own healthcare is just growing and growing. And obviously with technology, that is going to continue. Um, I think we're gonna see how healthcare is provided change radically in the next three to five years, especially as patients are pushing and driving some of their, um, their interest and their queries. And a lot of this has started two decades ago, pre all of that technology. You know, with the HIV and AIDS um, work. Um, and then uh, something that's near, also near and dear to my heart, and something that um, I were, we're proud of, kind of in a little bit like to the game, proud of way. Um, one of the things that the US government has done a really good job of um, while we've been out taking care of the rest of the world is requiring all of the countries that we support to have a national HIV AIDS strategy, which until 2010, we did not have. This was one of those do as I say, not as I do kind of parenting weird things that the US government, unfortunately, um, has, has, is trying to uh, kind of recuperate from at this stage. But in 2006, um, a group of AIDS activists and representatives from the community came together and said, we have a presidential election in 2008. We have a real opportunity to affect change. We need a national HIV AIDS strategy. Let's go to every um, mainstream, you know, kind of leading political um, candidate and ask them to commit to putting in place a national HIV AIDS strategy if they become elected. And um, to their credit, all the Democratic candidates did do that, did agree including, obviously, President Obama. Um, and, uh, and in the 11th hour, John McCain also did as well. And it's important to note that it wasn't just the Democrats who said that they, would, they thought that this was an important issue and something that could be um, done. And so uh, shortly after uh, President Obama was elected, he um, did as he said he would. And he convened a group of folks. He, put together the Office of the Na of National AIDS Policy, a NAP, which sits within the White House, and reconstituted the President's Advisory Council on HIV and AIDS, um, which, interestingly, he appointed largely activists and advocates to. Now, everybody has multiple hats, but it's a group of 25 um, presidential appointees to this um, body. and. And it was a very advocate and activist-driven group um, from the um, onset. And so in July of 2010, uh, President Obama released our first national HIV-AIDS strategy. And it was the, the first one was for five years. So we're coming up on the kind of five-year mark. And we're anticipating, actually, have been working on an update of that strategy. There were lots of good things and lots of challenges with the strategy. The strategy was a was a framework um, and you know it, it has done an enormous amount from my perspective in focusing the federal government and the federal agencies um, uh, kind of on their roles and how they can maximize efficiencies and how they can do a better job of what they do what it hasn't done so much is really um, mobilize the private sector and others to get engaged in the fight against HIV and AIDS. And so that's a piece that really needs to happen in the 2.0 piece of it going forward. 
So where do we go from here? Um, you know, I, we talked, I've talked a lot about all these great things that, that have happened um, because of HIV and AIDS, you know, AIDS advocacy and activism and people getting engaged and involved. But there's a lot, a lot still to be done. Um, we have uh, some really significant work in this country. If we talk about what's going on domestically, we have 50,000 plus new HIV infections in the United States every year. And that number has remained constant for the last more than 10 years, more than a decade. That is an enormous problem, frankly, from my perspective, it's a kind of an embarrassment, um, given the tools and the resources that we have here. Um, and I don't know about you, does anybody else ever have this experience? I, I sit on planes next to people often, and they say, what do you do? And I, if I say, well, I work in HIV and AIDS, they say, oh, it's horrible what's happening in Africa. And I you know, have to say, yes, it is, actually, although there's some really exciting things happening, and it's also horrible what's happening in Washington, D.C. Um, and when I say that, I'm talking about Anacostia, the neighborhood right behind um, the nation's capital, where the infection rates look exactly like they look in the hardest-hit regions in sub-Saharan Africa. But for which most Americans are completely unaware. Um, so we have to do a lot around normalization. And, and this is my perspective, of course, but normalizing HIV to help reduce the stigma and the discrimination associated with it. And when I say normalizing it, I mean you know, getting outside of the who are you and what have you done lately, the conversation that we, we keep asking healthcare providers to have in the clinical setting, but really kind of turning this into something that everybody feels some ownership and some obligation and responsibility to know. I told my mother's uh, book club that they should all go get HIV tested, um, which was kind of funny. They said, well, you know, we've all been married for 45 years or more. Um, it seems a little bit silly. I'm like, I, it's not because I think there's going to be an outbreak in your book club. It's because <laughs> I think it sends an incredible message to, uh, to your providers and to the people that you interface with. It's just important to know your HIV status, regardless of who you are. So um, there's a lot that needs to happen uh, in order to normalize HIV because we cannot get to the people who need to know about it most if everybody thinks this is something that happens to someone else. And I can give you countless uh, stories and experiences, one of which um, I, I love to tell is this whole kind of immersion program that we did, a group did in Houston about seven years ago where we took very hard hit um, neighborhoods and kind of went in and did pre-testing by household, pre, uh, um, kind of pre-testing uh, questionnaires about what you know about HIV and who's at risk and all of those kinds of things. And, um, and then for 30 days, they did everything, free gospel concerts, you know, pamphlets, things in, you know, van, mobile vans parked on their streets doing uh, neighborhood block parties. I mean, radio shows, stars and celebrities, everything you could think of to talk about HIV. And 30 days later, they went back through and did kind of a post-analysis of what happened. And what was exciting was that the vast majority of uh, people surveyed had an, an incredible uptake in their understanding around HIV. They really heard it, they got it, they realized it was there, they thought it was a problem in their community. They thought something that should be done. And they were all sure that someone in their family or one of their dear friends was at risk. And not, and there was no change in their perceived self-risk. None. Everybody's family was at risk. Everybody's friends were at risk. It's a terrible problem for our community, but it's, it's not, still not going to happen to me. Um, so, you know, that's, that, that's a big piece of our work around normalization and kind of taking this out of who are you and what have you done, but instead this is... This is a disease, and we're going to check in with you. You know, when we talk to women about going to get a pap smear, it's because it's easier to stay well than to get well. And if we can catch, you know, HPV early or some cervical uh, dysplasia, we can really, you know, kind of prevent cervical cancer. And geez, that's a win. And if you have HIV, then we know what we know how to help you manage it. And if you don't, we know how to keep you from getting it. Full stop. That's a totally different conversation. So. Um, I'll quit beating that drum. So uh, now, another game changer from my perspective is capitalizing on the Affordable Care Act implementation and the stuff that's going on now. And I'll be the first to say there are lots and lots and lots of challenges around Affordable Care Act implementation. 
Um, uh, lots of challenges for um, patients, needless to say, and for everything from outrageous co-pays and really difficult um, approval processes, et cetera, and limitations on providers and care. There's a lot of things that we've got to work through. But there are some things within ACA that we can really capitalize on right now. And some of that is the preventative screening. All preventative screening is covered now under the ACA. And frequently, providers are not even aware necessarily that that's the case. And so, you know, how do we begin to shift the mentality of our communities to a preventative model, proactive model, than a reactive treatment-based model. So, you know, come in, get, you know, get a full screening, we'll kind of get us where you are today, and then we'll figure out a plan for how to keep you well. And um, so there's some real, there's some strengths in some of what uh, we have to work with now, and I think we will begin to start to see some of this other stuff evolve as we start to work out the many, many kinks involved in the um, ACA stuff uh, we're all dealing with. Um, from my perspective, how many of you are familiar with PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis? Felt like this was probably a group that had, had uh, been quite aware of that. Um, incredibly exciting. Um, you know, several years ago we learned definitively that treatment is prevention, so the years of kind of figuring out whether we were going to prevent HIV or treat <coughs> HIV as if these things were mutually exclusive. There was this great feeling in, um, uh, in allocation of funds and resources whether we should focus on the people who don't have HIV or the people who do. We now know that that was a false choice, and we have data to show that, and that's helpful. Um, but now with pre-exposure prophylaxis, that has again even expanded that continuum or spectrum, if you will, from prevention into treatment and how we protect people and the public at large, as well as keep individuals healthy and well. Um, PrEP is, um, is exciting. It's also hard. It's antiretroviral therapy. Um, it's, I mean, the biomedical components of PrEP. Um, it is a, it is, uh, it's expensive. It's challenging to manage. It's a side, side effects that most people don't necessarily want to deal with. There are lists and lists of challenges. So, you know, especially as we look at the research that's been done predominantly on women and the challenges we've had in showing any efficacy for PrEP, um, mostly because linked to adherence, we've got to move towards a long-acting kind of model for some of these pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, op opportunities to really be realized in, in large population settings. So I think that that's a game changer, and it's actually not, maybe not as far away as some of us uh, think, think Depo, Provera, et cetera. Um, and then uh, I think, you know, I, I am, by the way, uh, in case I didn't make that clear in the beginning, I have spent most of the last 20 years as an AIDS activist and a treatment advocate, and then as a part of that, an advocate for women. Um, you can't be a treatment activist and not be familiar with treatment in men because that's where the data was and that's how um, you got it. I got into this from the beginning. But my unique niche in this has been really kind of serving as a voice for women and getting women engaged. And so um, the work uh, on developing an effective microbicide, both as it will benefit women and also men who have sex with men is a critical piece and a potential serious game changer. And then, of course, the cure and vaccine work. I think the most extraordinary thing about this um, conversation is it, that domestically, even without some of these game changers and without a cure and a vaccine, we have the ability, we have the tools now to actually drive down the epidemic in this country. Um, but the cure and the vaccine and some of the things that are listed up here are going to be necessary in order for us to do what we need to do to attack, to really truly get on top of the global pandemic. So um, I, I was going to put this at the beginning of the slide, uh, the, the thing, but I, I realized that you guys were going to know all of this, so I'm just going to go here really quickly um, just to make sure that I, I've dotted all my I's and crossed my T's. Here's a, here's a slide. How many of you have seen this slide before? Oh, a thousand times. Okay, um, so you know what the epidemic, the pandemic looks like uh, around the globe. I, I uh, 
have a little bugaboo, which is for some reason the United States, although we're the largest funder and we are, you know, kind of the, the big brother in all of the HIV and AIDS work around the globe, we never end up actually end up showing up really significantly on these maps, like we have a special hall pass or something. Um, so I always stick us in here. Here's, here's a really exciting piece, and probably many of you know this. This is what the global picture is. Um, we have reduced the rate of new infections by half. Um, around the globe. This has been extraordinary work and work that nobody was really sure we could actually do. And a lot of this has to do with PEPFAR and some of the uh, remarkable, remarkable programs that have been put in place. And yet, if we don't radically and significantly change what is going on around the world, so even with our success story, we're right here at this lovely little blue point where the red line starts to go that way. If we stay right where we are, this is what's going to happen by 2030. So despite the fact that we've reduced the rate of new infections by 50% around the globe since the early days of this pandemic, we still have an enormous problem and an enormous challenge on our hands. And so um, this is a slide, actually, that uh, was adopted from UNAIDS that um, Ambassador Burke showed at, at Croy, for those of you who are there. And um, we've had multiple conversations about how hard it is to really help people understand that if we don't go after some of the 90-90-90 um, goals that UNAIDS has put out and some of the other efforts to really significantly and dramatically um, reduce the rate of new infections swiftly, so we're going to still end up with a problem that's so large we can't um, get our arms around it. So um, again, just because I think sometimes we forget, we talk about all of the countries that are so um, uh, incredibly impacted, and I just I think it is really important for people to know exactly um, that we we are a part of the problem, <laughs> unfortunately, and there's. There's a lot more work to be done. Here's the really extraordinary news. And again, this is a largely because of PEPFAR Global Fund and the resources that have been put into this. 13.6 million people receiving antiretroviral therapy as of last June. Here's the hard part. Depending on whether you think this should be by CD4 um, cutoff or by uh, kind of all comers, this is how many people are actually eligible to receive antiretroviral therapy around the world. And as we know, it's part of how we prevent HIV. We've, this is a significant challenge um, and financial challenge. So, you know, I, I put this up this, this week um, slide. And most of us, this, this is my kind of drinking from the fire hose kind of experience that many of us have had in our work around HIV and AIDS. The numbers are so big. And it all feels so intractable and challenging. And yet, we still have to find ways to wrap our heads around the impact of this pandemic in a really significant way. Um, 25,000 adults will die of AIDS this week around the globe. And if you look at this number, 36,500 people will be infected with HIV. And you add that to that slide where I talked about the number of people who are eligible for treatment. Um, I think uh, Ambassador Burke's estimate was at the lowest possible level for treatment provision, $500 annually or something like that. That's another $15 million a week. Um, so what we have here is a problem we have to address, and, and we can't, can't do it in small ways. I know I'm preaching to the choir. So finally, um, this, the, these people are the next generation. These are the reasons that I do this work and that many, um, probably many of you do it. These are my daughters. Um, and uh, today's going to be one of those days, too. Um, these are the kids I was never going to have in 1988. When I was diagnosed, they said six months. That's we, we, we didn't know. That's what we knew then. Um, it's going to be 27 years next month. And I have a... Um, you know, two healthy HIV-negative daughters who are now entering the ages of the girls around the world who are being impacted by HIV every day. Um, Maddie will be 13 next month, and, and Sophie's 11. And, and these are the people for whom we can't uh, let up the hard work and the fight. So I'm going to stop there and give you a chance to ask some questions. 
um, and to engage in a, in a bit of a dialogue around all of this, because I feel like I've kind of backed up the dump truck on you right now. <laughs> <laughs> Any questions? Yes. Thank you. Um, one of the most interesting OAMP projects, I think, has been the 12 Cities Projects, or project, but it's fallen off the radar screen a bit. Can you talk about that a bit and what you think it had, had or has to offer and what's going to happen? Yeah, so the 12 Cities Project was an idea that we really do very, very targeted intervention in places that um, have really high incidents um, and, and really try to get on top of what's happening in those communities. And, and I think the 12 Cities Project, as it became constructed <laughs> after the iterations had challenges, I think it has not gone away. Um, now people are talking about hot spots initiatives and programs, and there are, those are being done both by CDC and HRSA, but also being done by industry. Vive Healthcare just announced three um, target uh, cities um, interventions for young black men who have sex with men, um, where they're going to do kind of full out induction. And, and um, the Women's Research Initiative on HIV AIDS, which is a women in HIV think tank that, that um, I have the privilege of working with, is, is working on identifying how we supplement what happens in communities where the focus is specifically on one population and kind of build out what goes on there so we can begin to show some, some kind of meaningful results. Um, I think one of our great challenges with all of these initiatives has been our limitation, our data limitations. Mm -hmm. Our access to real-time data is a real problem and a real challenge. Um, our ability to make kind of decisions about where to put funds, what to scale up, what to move on, um, is, is just, from my perspective, radically limited by the fact that we're looking at three-year-old data and not being able to really kind of move. And we do have access to better data now. And so there's, a, um, there's some significant activities going on with a number of groups, and one of which that I'm working on, that it will look at for other ways to get that information other than through um, the CDC. Uh, generated information sources. So stay tuned. I think 12 Cities is a, um, conceptually is the right idea. Um, my, my feeling on that, just to be sure, just to be clear, because I talked a little bit about normalization and getting the broad mainstream kind of on board with recognizing the impact of HIV, is that there, it, it's not an either or, it's a both. Um, so there's, this, there's a kind of this need to kind of change the way the people in this country perceive HIV and also to do very targeted interventions because we now have the ability to distill those things down in an incredibly granular way and know exactly which blocks and which neighborhoods are having really big problems. How many of you have been reading, the, following the stuff going on in Indiana? Mm -hmm. Unbelievable, uh, you know, but but there, Indiana unfortunately is not the only story like that, and we have now, um, you know, we have kind of the tale of two Americas in the United States right now. Um, I have to I can't call it that because the North the North America is bigger than just us, and they always like Canada and Mexico always want to remind me of that. Um, but you know, there's there's some really um, remarkable success stories when you look at what Massachusetts is doing. New York has just said we're going to get to zero by 2020. There have been states that have been remarkably successful in getting on top of their epidemics, and yet there are some horrifying stories and experiences about what's still going on around the U.S., so more to be done. Other questions? Yeah? Um, with the, the 2016 presidential campaign starting and the number of uh, potential candidates increasing. What kind of conversation is, is, is being had? Lots of conversations are being had. Um, uh, lots of conversations are being had about how, um, again, from my pers perspective, we strategically put in place things in the remaining uh, waning days of this administration to allow for success and wins for the next administration, <laughs> whoever that may be. 
Um, there's uh, some very significant efforts in the advocacy community to kind of begin to think like we did with the um, pre-President uh, Obama's election about how we kind of stage those opportunities for the next set of candidates and really get them to fully um, and uh, to commit to doing something differently. So um, there's, I, I think there's going to be a growing amount of conversation. Obviously, in the primary um, uh, race and in the kind of, as we all end up in, a bit in the weeds here for a little bit, um, I think as that starts to sort out, there will be a lot more pressure to really kind of commit to making some significant changes um, for the next administration. But, you know, I think we need to recognize that these are, these are kind of the golden days for this administration, because you can do things at the end of your <laughs> at the end of your run you couldn't do um, earlier, and so uh, I think we can't let up on on what we'd like to see and what we expect, um, and you know where the opportunities for real kind of legacy building are. Yeah. Sorry, give the mic. I have a question for you that has to do with sort of need for activism around patent protection laws and some like strategies around that. So need for activism around patent, patent protection. protection. So I'll tell you more what I was thinking. Um, uh, uh, there's been a lot of conversation since the World Trade Organization has put into place that TRIPS uh, agreement that would sort of that tried to sort of have an international agreement around patent protection for drug companies making any product. And there's been a lot of conversation about how they built into that law flexibilities to allow people with public health emergencies like AIDS to, to build an exception so that you can still do generics when needed in India. Yeah. And yet, it's pretty clear that that has slowed the delivery of antiretrovirals to needed areas, particularly in the countries unlike Thailand, unlike South Africa, where there's sort of not even really an apparatus to harness those exceptions. So I'm curious, you know, sort of, is there a conversation in the activist community about um, trying to strike a better balance so that, you know, pharmaceutical companies have real incentives to create, because they should have that, but also so that we can not let people die needlessly? Yeah, it's a great question. Actually, you know, truthfully, that should have been maybe one of the accomplishments up there because from my perspective, um, in some ways, there's been some significant wins there. Um, and, and it came about, um, it's been probably seven or so years ago when the um, initial patent transfers and, and um, technology transfers started taking place with some of the company, pharmaceutical companies because they did a little bit of a cost-benefit analysis. They were either going to have to scale up and build these massive factories to produce drugs um, and make them available in the developing world, um, and it was going to be an enormous ex cost and liability and expense. And they, they were quickly, you know, some of them, able to figure out that it was more in their interest to identify regions of the world where they could actually hand over the technology and do patent and do technology transfer to um, specific generic companies in order to produce those therapies, which is why, by the way, that you, you, know, there are, you can do a, com a complete antiretroviral regimen in the developing world for $300 to $500 a year, and you can't do it here for less than $15,000 or so. Um, so, you know, there's there has been some success there, um, but, you know, prying some of this stuff out of the hands of the um, pharmaceutical companies is a real challenge. And in some ways, the hardest part is not making sure what that we do right by um, the global south and front by countries that are not able, um, but it's the middle income and high income countries and specifically the United States where we pay, you know, the United States actually bears 42% of the research and development costs globally. So the reason drugs are so unbelievably outrageously expensive and frankly crippling our system is because we are, we are covering those costs for everybody else. And so we have, so we kind of have uh, two prongs, you know, we have a series of challenges. And one of those things is, um, which you really 
you highlighted and brought up, which is really important, is we still need them to do this work. You know, so as an AIDS activist and somebody who spent a lot of time sitting in rooms and arguing about pricing strategies and, and you know, price gouging and all of those other things, there is this tenuous balance between making sure that they still have the resources they invest to do the research um, and, you know, it can make sense to their, uh, their shareholders and also um, that people actually get access to those therapies when they're made available. So um, there's an enormous, there's a fair pricing coalition, there's a number of different coalitions that for the last decade, um, actually more, 15 years, have actually worked hand in hand with all the pharmaceutical companies as therapies are being developed. And frankly, there have been a number of therapies that I think that were mutually decided to be handed off to other companies, to potential generic style manufacturers, and even to be um, further researched at NIH so that the companies didn't have them, find themselves having to develop a compound that they had no chance of, of um, making market back on. So there's a, it's a mess. It's, it's a very hard um, and tenuous balance, but, but an important <coughs> Other questions? I knew you were an experienced crowd, but uh, I may have just battered you with all of the <laughs> reasons I think AIDS acti activism has been so great. <laughs> Any observations on your, your new home versus your name, Northern Greenland, your own home oh. came from as far as, you know, well, you know, it's interesting. I'm still kind of figuring out what's uh, what's going on here in, in uh, the Upper Valley. I have lots of colleagues in Boston, and um, and you know, so it's kind of exciting to be up here. It's wonderful to be able to call this place home and get away from it all. Um, but I also think that there are a lot of significant challenges. I, I, we live in Norwich, Vermont, and I hear a lot about what's going on. Um, with the injection drug use issues in, in Vermont and um, actually had a really fascinating conversation with um, the, uh, the foster parents and children's association services that were talking about the enormous need around um, care provision for, for children who are not being abused but who are frankly just being neglected because of the drug issues in, in the community. So I think that there's going to be lots of crossover, but from um, in my world, um, mostly I get to enjoy the enormous, the incredible beauty, and um, and deal with a little bit of uh, PTSD over winter travel. Um, <laughs> this past year, uh, I think I had eight canceled flights in three weeks, and um, you know I thought, oh, this is that doesn't bode well for traveling in the winter time, but but uh, mostly I. Uh, I really enjoy being here and kind of getting to know what people are doing. It's kind of a cool thing to be in DC. I spend a lot of time in Washington, DC, and to be when people say, what's going on up there? Um, uh, it's nice as I'm starting to really kind of understand a little more about the community and uh, some of the great work that's happening to be able to talk about it. This is the state of our next president, Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, in Vermont. <laughs> Do you have your bumper sticker? I, I've given Bernie money. I haven't got the bumper sticker. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my $10 probably put him over the top. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much yeah. for joining us. Absolutely.